We have a very strong civil society presence in Uganda, a very strong, if under, always under pressure, LGBT movement. And their advice to the world is to say, work with us and let us lead our interactions with our government to see how we can minimize the damage that this law would cause. And I think that has been difficult for a lot of LGBT groups in Europe and the United States to embrace. And I feel very, very strongly about that. I know you do. The default reaction is you need to be adamant and push this agenda. The problem is, is that you do a lot of harm. Well, welcome everyone to Global Health Diplomats. And I'm here with Ben Plumley for another episode of Discussion and Thoughts. It's really good to see you, Eric. And yeah, we're back for the Global Health Diplomats, our next monthly episode. I want to especially make a comment to the whole global health diplomacy effort is really in honor of John Martin, who was a colleague and friend for many years. Uh, a thought colleague, as well as an inspiration. So thank you for that. Uh, I guess we've had a lot of feedback and comments from folks. Um, people thoroughly enjoyed your conversation with uh, Tony Fauci. Um, and uh, uh, one of the questions that, that I think came in fairly frequently was, great that you're going to be interviewing the great and the good, but what do you think about global health diplomacy, Eric and Ben? And that's a common theme that, that has come back. So we thought in this episode, we would interview each other. Um, and I know we've got a few things to talk about, as well as um, global health diplomacy, the state in Uganda with uh, the LGBT legislation, um, the recent UNAIDS report on the three dividends coming from investments in AIDS. Um, and of course, what is actually happening in the United States with um, with abortion rulings. But if we kick off first with global health diplomacy, you were brilliant as we were preparing this in coming up with the questions that we wanted to ask our future guests, um, but which I think are also relevant for us to think about right now for ourselves. Very good. I think that's a fair request, uh, and I think it's an important moment uh, to think about uh, what global health diplomacy is, uh, why it's a relevant vehicle for the moment that we're in, uh, and as we come out of a period of a shared threat with the COVID, uh, we need uh, to understand how to uh, invoke, uh, activate, expand those platforms for discourse and agreement and a convergence on where do we go from here that comes from both bilateral, multilateral relationships. And the reason I think that that's still important is because our ability to deliver services that we already know are needed to populations that are underserved needs relationships with rich countries, not rich countries, countries with capability, capacity on a technical assistance level, both regional, adjacent, and afar, need to be understood and invoked if we're going to gather the necessary resources to respond to a pandemic that could hit anywhere on the planet. 
So there you are being the diplomat again and describing it in 38,000 feet level. But I mean, you've chosen a career in public health rather than uh, a provider, a treater. And what's the excitement? Why is this important to you? Why is global health diplomacy important to you? What do you want to fix? Yeah, I guess for me, um, I view the world as a series of disparities for what could be, should be, can be, and what is. And I think the public health system is one of the surveyors of those disparities that keeps societies honest. Uh, there aren't many. And I think our political system has not sustained itself as a vehicle for defining need, prioritizing that unmet need, and then making an allocation decision to address it. It's been corrupted into a very different animal. The decisions being made by politicians in any country you want to name, really, uh, are more self-serving than they've ever been in earlier element times in my life. And it saddens me to see how consistently the political lever in society is consistently making decisions for itself and for its own positioning or profit. And I just would use the word profit. And the flip side of it is the population that they are serving never seems to hold them accountable for not delivering on responding to those unmet needs in developed and developing settings, north and south. It, it's the same everywhere. That lack of accountability, I believe, is something that we need to educate our populations about, that the power to move a political decision to responding to an unmet need comes from that discourse, but it begins with the understanding of the disparity. So public health, academic medicine, I think needs to focus like a ra laser on articulating, defining, and quantifying those disparities, who, what, where, and when is getting or is not getting the services that we believe the science should afford. So disparities, I'm with you absolutely as the, as the starting point. For me, the whole concept of global health diplomacy is about making sure that health is put much higher on the um, political agenda. I, I guess it's what you're saying. But um, I mean, both of us are sort of fairly outraged at the lack of basic primary care services around the world. And unfortunately, in increasingly in the UK, which did have it right for a while. Mm -hmm. And of course, the huge disparities in the United States around primary health care. But, and I think you've spoken to this as well, we're in a, a strange new era, the, the, the post-Cold War consensus is well and truly gone and we're in uncertain times and putting aside if you can Russia's invasion of Ukraine for one moment although that does factor into it um, the thing that is really driving us actually is the climate crisis and everything comes from that um, the you know um, sure pandemics new and old HIV, yep. COVID, but also famine, uh, also flooding. And the health components of these are, are really incredibly great. And then I look at the other side of it, 
uh, for me, the flip side of the coin is that countries like the United States particularly, and again, less so the United Kingdom in recent years, have made huge financial investments to countries around the world. I mean, PEPFAR, the the program, the billion-dollar program that you ran for a number of years, and that's an example of soft power, which I really believe in, um, but as a way of building equality and building um, uh, a partner relationship between donors and so-called recipient countries. So that's why it's in, in, important to me. That, I think that really is the point, Ben. It it uh, it allows um, for uh, the uh, to understand a disparity and be able to have a area, a sector that can have a discussion about it and garnish resources to respond to it. The problem has been, uh, in my opinion, that the response has taken on, uh, instead of being an emergency response, a transient bridge of need addressed. It becomes the permanent response, and it was never built that way. And the uh, kind of recipient country to these technical assistant kind of um, demonstrations that go on, especially bilateral efforts like the PEPFAR effort, uh, need to find and land in an environment that has the discussion about what is the ongoing permanent need of this population and as the government or responsible entity for that population charged with that care, the government, uh, what is the solution in partnership with civil society, private sector too, to respond to those unmet needs? I believe the diplomatic discussion that is needed to start those conversations going in resource-poor settings the donor needs to play a catalytic role, not a solution role, permanent solution role, to articulation, defining the needs that are present and where the donor dollar fits in to the country's vision of the response. So how does that play out in practice? When you were leading PEPFAR, how would you move from driving implementation to being the catalyst? How would that have worked? So I think um, one of the one of the examples you've already alluded to is the situation that was going on in many sub-Saharan African countries. I think people are aware of the Uganda threat for uh, LGBTQ communities being threatened by legislative agendas that threatened um, uh, on a uh, incarceration and penalty level uh, sodomy homosexuality named, labeled, identified, and became political issues for legislators uh, to, uh, to gain popularity. Um, that uh, theme was present in many sub-Saharan African countries. And through uh, the relationship of PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, being at that time 15, 10, 5 to 10 years old, uh, but had demonstrated an act, not in word, a commitment to the population by the United States government that was felt and appreciated by the people of the country who benefited from it, but also by the government. It gave us a credibility 
and initiating a dialogue about something that is a societal issue, very uh, uh, volatile issue, and one that the politicians generally didn't want to engage with if they didn't have to, except there was a group that used it as a wedge issue to gain political power. We were able to begin and continue discussions to this day with leadership in these countries about the wisdom of this approach, the barrier to access and retention it represents, and how we as a partner in this effort, already having made a responsibility to your population that we've demonstrated for 15 years, uh, are upset and concerned that this is a sensibility that does not align with ours. Start it there and go through it. Everyone gets where that conversation is going, and it consistently resulted in leadership at the highest level in countries tabling issues that were in the legislative queue uh, or removing them or just politically saying, I'm not supporting this and that will end this issue for a year or two. But it rekindles. And it's that sustained dialogue that I think global health diplomacy affords. Well, I mean, that gets us on to our, our first big topic, doesn't it? The situation in Uganda with the LGBT community. So for listeners and viewers who haven't been following this, essentially a uh, very draconian law has passed through the Ugandan gov uh, parliament that would essentially persecute anyone who uh, claims to be uh, LGBT, well, I don't know if the Q is in it, but certainly LGBT, and um, and you know, with some really strict draconian penalties, um, it passed the houses that their, their parliament very very easily. It has massive public support, and it's now with the president's office, President Museveni, um, and he's deciding what to do with it. And I guess Eric. My first question to you about this, and you can throw this right back at me as well, but is what advice would you give the new PEPFAR ambassador, the American ambassador in Uganda and the Biden administration about what they should do? What leverage do they have and what and should they be engaged in trying to head this off? Um I think this is an example of an issue that for the United States government um, uh, had been embraced and they uh, had bought in to that agenda as reflective of the Biden administration specifically. But before in the Obama administration, this came to the same head. And in the Clinton administration, versions of at much smaller levels pre-PEPFAR um, were uh, festering, but that large commitment that PEPFAR represents in 72 countries at the time, but certainly in the countries that we're talking about, um, gave a forum that was accepted by leadership in the country because of that long-term commitment and allowed for dialogue with president and all senior people repeatedly about our concerns about the issue. Uh, and I would say moved that agenda to temporary fixes that were not lasting. Uh, but I think then something we've talked about before, 
um, this is a very delicate area to move into a societal uh, uh, position. You're often in these conversations uh, accused of uh, trying to change cultures. And that's where often the conversation goes. Uh, but I think with the uh, talk is cheap, the actions of the commitment that 15 years of commitment to uh, millions of people sustained on antiretroviral therapy and the enabling services needed to continue it uh, says to leadership and country is that this country has made a commitment to my population that we appreciate and we can see uh, needs to continue. And in order for that, our relationship needs to continue. And I'm open to hearing what your concerns are and continuing that to not an ultimatum, but to a impasse of you've put us in a position where we are going to have trouble continuing this support. Now, I want to also say that uh, that John Nakingasong, uh, as the ambassador now, uh, is in the orchestrating role, uh, seeing that need. He needs to work with the diplomatic levers that he has in the State Department to define the conversation, uh, to put it where it should be, and to put the decision-making in, uh, in a, um, uh, a position where it requires a U.S., uh, um, the, where the country of interest is interested in the United States position on it and want to incorporate that into their position. That's really where you're trying to go. And once that happens, you're going to come out somewhere where it's going to be definitely more acceptable, maybe even acceptable. The so I go to ask me. you, I go to go ask ahead. you, there you are talking theoretically. During your time at PEPFAR, did you ever have any conversations with presidents and others about these issues? Yes, this this was a, uh, an issue uh, in, uh, in Uganda, Burundi, Rwanda. It was in Tanzania, a direct scheduled formal back and forth around this issue because they were they were all on legislative agendas. Uh, it was done uh, before it was acute, except in Uganda, it got acute in the first go around. Uh, but um, but I think it went uh, well because of that long term relationship commitment and for lack of another word, the trust that had been created from that allowed for a push to be present and accepted and not destroy the relationship. Um, the commitment to the people already identified, entered, and on antiretrovirals and in care uh, was total. We knew that we couldn't abandon that care, so that wasn't really on the table, but the discussion brought it to the table and uh, was understood as an eventual repercussion, but not an immediate one, but we're going to have to go there if we can't reconcile this. Wow. That so, kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So basically you're saying that while a temptation might be to say to presidents who do this, oh, if, if, if you persecute this community, we will pull our funding. You can't do that when it comes to HIV medication, when it comes to HIV prevention. It's more a question of leveraging that continued commitment, although I sense you are saying that 
at the back of your mind, the sort of the the stick here, if that can be used as a, a, a word, is that that does sort of hang over the conversation in some in you some know, way. Ben, you know, you are somebody who was a master at this with the early work with uh, Ambassador Holbrook and the dialogues and conversations that led up to the uh, to the business council's formation and role. It was a juxtaposition of a different societal element to try to leverage an agenda movement. That same kind of triangulation, for to use a dirty, a dirty kind of reference, uh, is uh, is what you're doing. Uh, and the fact that the United States and its original concept of PEPFAR did not put the country between them and the patient, the person receiving the antiretrovirals, they did it directly. They stood up new clinics. They brought in people from Columbia and Harvard and UCSF and uh, to to be the uh, managers of the clinic, to be the clinicians in the clinic, uh, set up a separate laboratory and procurement distribution system, a parallel system of care largely, because um, that was uh, the approach. We were directly in front of the patient as the provider of care and removing ourselves was an abandonment of care unless we referred that patient to the public system or private system. We would be um, uh, unethical in that. The United States understood that in their management and orchestration of PEPFAR and how it played out in each country. Um, and during uh, the second phase of PEPFAR, a movement toward putting that private, the public sector reference role in there, being part of the government system and not around it. Uh, not using a formulary that the gov that the government doesn't have, not you know using their procurement distribution system. All of those things shifted, and they started to manage and oversee their own programs. When that occurred, um, the ability to remove yourself becomes ethically appropriate. But we were not there, and still in many instances are not there. Yeah. But we're in a lot better shape. Uh, but we need to go there rapidly, strongly. It's the big area kind of that I think Ambassador Nkinga-Song uh, sees as a need and is urgently trying to respond to it. Uh, I believe the diplomatic platform is going to increase in its relevancy to arrange those agreements as that shift in management oversight moves more to in-country civil society. So I think global health diplomacy has a really key role to play here. Um, I mean, it, it, one immediate reflection is that in uh, supporting country, really believing and supporting in country ownership, the ability of a funder to influence the political dis discourse, I think, weakens. But um, I think there are three things about this that, that, that are relevant. The first is that we have a very strong civil society uh, presence in Uganda, um, a very strong, if under always under pressure, LGBT movement, some great leaders. And their advice to the world is to say, work with us and let us lead uh, our interactions with our government to see how we can minimize the damage that this law would cause. And I think that has been difficult for a lot of LGBT groups in Europe and the United States to embrace. 
but it's really important. And I feel very, very strongly about that. I know you do. The default reaction is you need to be adamant and push this agenda. Uh, and uh, the problem is, is that you do a lot of harm. And if you're present and, and, and uh, in dialogue with the community that's in front of this every day, all day, uh, you have to um, understand that they have the understanding and can put wisdom into your decisions that you can never achieve without that connection. Uh, and it's wrong to do it yeah. that, any other way, really. And you fall into a trap. The trap is that you are being precisely this question of you, you, you are being colonial. You <laughs> are saying uh, yeah. we are imposing these values. And it now the irony here, and, and this was something I found fascinating in a recent um, podcast that the Lincoln Project did with with um, uh, someone from the New York Times who had spent significant amounts of um, interaction and engagement and um, and placement with the uh, sort of white uh, Christian nationalists in the United States who actually are supporting and influencing a lot of this um, Christian fundamentalist or religious fundamentalist. It's not just restricted to Christianity um, yeah. that drives this. And so so that that's something that we need to reflect on. And again, the best people to lead this are the local communities, um, and we play a supportive role. The other thing that I think is interesting here, and I've heard this on the grapevine, that, um, believe it or not, the Russian ambassador has been spending a lot of time in the uh, president's office, and his uh, the ambassador's staff and the Russian uh, embassy have spent a lot of time with politicians, parliamentarians, and that they see an opportunity to push an agenda that is, um, you know, the Americans and the Europeans, less so the British, are trying to impose values on development aid that they're giving. We're not going to do that. We will just help you build roads, build airports, build the hospitals. Russian, the Russian MSP. Yeah. I mean, now they don't have any money to do that, mm -hmm. but the Chinese do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and so we're seeing um, an, an, an attempt to uh, polarize, somewhat going back to the Cold War, the way that the way that we thought about things. And you, you sort of see now in Sudan um, the involvement of, of Wagner in one of the uh, groups that's fighting for control. And I think bringing this back to global health, I think we have to acknowledge the damage that was done during the rollout or lack of rollout of the COVID vaccines. And I particularly want to get your thoughts on this. I, I really feel we screwed it up diplomatically. I feel it was a major mistake in uh, the exercise of soft power. The vaccine nationalism let gave sent the very strong message to our partners in sub-Saharan Africa that they were on their own. And I know we're going to get Michel Sidibe from the uh, from the African Union on in a future podcast to explore this. But notwithstanding uh, the responsibilities of those own those own governments, I think 
that was a really strong message that despite all the billions that have been invested, say in PEPFAR and the Global Fund, hey, when push comes to shove, you countries are on your own. Well, I think, Ben, you've, your honest uh, description of what occurred, I, I agree with. Um, the talk is cheap, actions speak louder than words, and this is a, a perfect example of that. Um, the bottom line is nobody got the vaccine unless they could pay for it. And um, there was a minimal amount of effort put to procurement distribution barriers. Uh, th those were eventually dealt with, but the real rate limiter was the inability to purchase vaccine as early as possible in the attempts to you know, vaccinate the population before the exposure. And I think um, our colleagues in resource-poor settings, every resource-poor setting I'm aware of, uh, now strongly understands that it is on them. They knew that before if they were, um, uh, if, if they just used any example they could name. Uh, HIV was an exception with the global effort that went toward responding to that uh, 27 years, 23 years after the beginning of the outbreak, but nevertheless there. Uh, and still, um, their countries in that HIV response have not inserted themselves in the position needed for continuation of those antiretrovirals to their population. And so I think the chain that goes from a discovery uh, to um, a product that responds and mitigates exposure and progression and death uh, is dependent on uh, your ability to pay for it. And secondly, uh, the other theme that has come up in talking to countries that did not benefit is the belief that a manufacturing capability facilitates access to these products. Um, not may not necessarily be true, but it is a logical way to think. And the, I think, consensus is that that now needs to be what we talk about. That capability needs to be regionally distributed uh, with access by the regional local countries that are in that region. But, um, but that the, the need for a shared responsibility because of the of the distortion of where GNP lands and where it's needed, uh, disparities, has to um, acknowledge that we need to have a platform and a forum to talk about those disparities and move from rich to poor and a sustainability agenda um, agreement that goes with it on day one, uh, or we are going to continue to see these disparities huge outcome differences are going to continue to present themselves. And those are the things that destabilize society. And I am um, I think people in public health see this at a community level, but at a national level and a regional level, uh, we, we dodged it with COVID. Uh, and uh, it did not spread in the way that it could have. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but we were lucky. But it, again, primes us for we saw the threat. It didn't propagate. But are we smart enough to put the um, elements in place that allow for 
uh, a check on a pandemic threat that is not just going to the rich countries on the planet. So I, we're going to come back to both of these issues. We'll keep a, a close eye on what's going on in Uganda. Um, and um, I, I, I guess our approach is going to be of um, uh, active listening and support to, to, uh, to the leaders there, whether they're in government, whether they're in civil society, or whether they happen to be head of PEPFAR at the moment. And of course, uh, we'll come back to this question of how we build solidarity for what will be the next pandemic. But um, why don't we change tack a little bit and um, go to a question that we got from uh, one of our listeners, Christine Stegling, mm -hmm. uh, the wonderful Christine Stegling, who's recently been appointed as one of uh, UNAIDS's assistant secretary generals. And, and she wanted to know what we thought of the recent report that was released uh, with John um, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. on the triple dividend that comes from investing fully in the AIDS response. And, you know, I thought it was a really good report. They worked with the, um, uh, the Economist, the Economist Impacts uh, Department, to look at what kind of benefits would come uh, accrue to both economies, to um, education, particularly girls' education. And they predicted things like uh, Kenya's GDP increasing by 1.1% if HIV was fully invested in. And also that, um, you know, South Africa's would increase, I think, by about 2.8%. Um, and, um, and I, you know, I got a couple of, uh, comments on the, um, uh, on the report, a British diplomat who will remain nameless said to me how wonderful the report was because it was lovely to see UNAIDS talking about AIDS again, which I thought was a bit priceless, but it, yes. I thought it was a useful report and it's really good to see UNAIDS joining the dots between, um, education economic growth, and how investments in HIV, and presumably not just HIV, the impact that they have. Um, uh, but I don't know what your thoughts are about, uh, you know, looking at this from a, say, a disease-specific approach, as opposed to a broader investment in health. And, you know, my God, Eric, does it bring us back to primary care again? Mm -hmm. Well, very astute, Ben, to me. Uh, it is completely appropriate for UNAIDS to look at the slice that HIV represents, and it is associated with such morbidity and mortality unchecked that it deserves that. It's earned its you know, recognition and attention. Uh, I think that you're right to say that it is a piece of a larger pie, unmet need, that I think primary care or the lack of primary care globally really represents. Not having a common platform off of which uh, an individual can access any need from prevention to treatment uh, uh, in any disease category and or in a referral relationship from one spot is really needed. And it is not widely available. Donor dollars go in and create centers of excellence and usually one disease that is a part from the standard of care of the community, of the country. 
uh, and it can serve as a center of excellence for referral and training. But after that, to move that capability to scale uh, requires a commitment and investment from the local resources uh, that uh, will sustain it. And we don't do that almost at all in our donor-driven investments. That is ignoring the shared responsibility that that unmet need represents. And rich country tie-in to the unmet need from a disproportionate um, share of the GNP of the planet going to their population in a developed country. That disparity, although uh, let's say legally achieved, okay, not not or that, as best as we can describe it, uh, is still an ethical reason for that rich country to move resources to poor countries. There is an ethical obligation that we don't talk about that resides. And I believe a global health diplomatic platform is one of the platforms that should resurrect that discussion. Uh, not a religious discussion. We're talking about a human need discussion that goes recognized but unmet. So I've got two thoughts about this. You know, and I got to, I, I actually got to eat my words a bit because I think I was one of the people who, early on when Winnie B. and Mina was appointed executive director, wanted to see a very strong HIV related message. But she pushed these structural uh, challenges, particularly around um, access to vaccines, access to medical technology. And I think what I like about this report um, is that it does force me to eat my words a bit because it is a step towards stating very clearly that these things are interrelated. So I think that is, um, I think that's really important. Um, I think the second thing uh, that really strikes me coming out of this is that um, we have got to make sure that we are delivering on the investments that we committed to. We've got a debate going on at the moment about the new budget in the United States for fully funding the global fund or the US contribution to that, which is so catalytic to the to the rest of the world. So that's important. But I mean, also, where the hell are the Europeans? Now, I know that the, you know, uh, we can't take my mother country, the United Kingdom, as a as a good example. It's it's really a poster child on how not to evolve your donor funding. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, I know the U.S. is and hopefully will remain the hyperpower in the world, but how do we get others into this? Um, I think uh, we need to understand the unmet need and our relationship to that unmet need as a rich versus not so rich or developing country you have a relationship to an unmet need, even as a poor country, that need may more, unmet need may reside more in your country. And for a while, you need to act as a repository of other resources, which you don't have to come to your country to respond to your population's needs. You need to be honest about the relationship of the money flow and the, um, uh, gradient into your 
resource pots to respond to your population's needs. You are in a dependent relationship with that, that you are, as a country, receiving these funds should be uncomfortable with and always negotiating, fighting, securing your ability to take divergent funds from one donor or another, but put them into your description of the unmet need and your prioritization of that unmet need so you're making the allocation decision. Donors need to feel comfortable in allowing that to happen. You, uh, our ability to step into a sustainable pattern of services is directly predicated on our willingness to allow local prioritization of unmet need to be responded to with the donor dollar and feel good about it. Be in a conversation with the country at that moment that this reflects your priority. You see this as what you want to fund. We are a partner with you. We trust that you're going to be responsible for that decision and in engaging your population about what was and what is not done. We want to still be in that conversation with you in terms of the LGB discussion aspects that we were talking about earlier is an example of that. But there are many other examples of that. Uh, people that we treat in HIV that don't get dialysis, that don't get their hypertension diagnosed, their coronary artery disease, who don't see insulin and die from it is a joke in the scheme yeah. of ethics, okay? And um, we are smart enough to figure out how to respond to both, but the, fi the final common platform is a primary care foundation off of which you can get to subspecialty diseases. It's the responsible thing to do, and it's the sustainable thing to do, and donors should be into it because it shifts the responsibility to local people where it belongs. Well, what a brilliant bridge to our, our final big issue to the day of, of the day, and this actually is uh, answers a question that came to us from um, a uh, a Geneva-based health diplomat who's again name will remain nameless, but. Um, hoping that we talk about things other than HIV. And one of the other big issues and stories that we're facing at the moment actually is here in the United States, which is going to have huge global ramifications. But it is about the decision of a Texas federal judge to ban um, a medication that is used in um, early termination of pregnancies in combination with another compound. Um, and uh, we are in a situation where the Supreme Court has um, put a halt on that Texas judge's banning of this medication. And it's been really interesting to me to see the medical community and to see the pharmaceutical industry um, really align around a social good, a social need, uh, perhaps not least because we can't have politically, um, I want to say politically appointed, I'm going to say politically appointed judges uh, making decisions that really belong to the FDA. Mm. But, you know, our sister podcast, A Shot in the Arm, did a show last year with frontline aides just as the Roe versus Wade decision was was coming out and what really struck me at the time was the 
the prediction that was not wrong about the chilling effect that this would have around the world to uh, sexual and reproductive health programs that uh, other countries were implementing very often with the support of the United States. And I guess, Eric, what do you think the impact of this decision is going to be globally? Well, I think it was startling in the United States to have a decision made by uh, a, uh, a a non-medical, non-scientific brain not having reviewed a body of information or literature to make the decision to just decide that this was not something that would be available anymore uh, and change uh, a access issue, which in the United States was viewed as a right, uh, a, a civil right, uh, and much of our history was in defining it that way, uh, away from women. Uh, and to have uh, men, once again, or a man, uh, make that kind of a decision was emotionally upsetting to everybody we know, uh, both professionally and personally, and it reverberated in a way that was startling. So I really just want to agree that this was a bigger deal than just a drug coming off the shelf uh, threat. But the larger threat for a non-medical process to have the authority to pull a medical process out from underneath um, is ridiculous and cannot uh, be the way we run our government, our drug approval, it's not uh, how patients, people who use and depend on the FDA's knowledge in allowing something to move forward and be available or not available. Uh, it distorts that process. Indeed, when something like this is done, it eliminates the utility of that process. And I don't believe it will stand. So I think that we have to go through it, but we will go through it successfully and things will be reinstated. Um, Globally, uh, it chills people because many of the large sustained motors come from 0.7 countries and the United States in terms of reproductive health services. Um, and, you know, the large, the depot provera type responses uh, are uh, vitally important, mostly to women and families, includes men, but it's the woman who deals with the burden of you know, four children, five children, six children versus one or two children uh, and uh, her ability or inability to manage the limited resources to address all those needs uh, is tragic to watch. And I've practiced enough in settings where you see, uh, like in Uganda, high, uh, uh, you know, seven and eight kind of babies per woman uh, uh, applauded by the government as something that they want because they want Ugandans to be in higher numbers, all uh, reasonable things to aspire to, but not at the cost of uh, kind of morbidity that's uh, realized by those families as they try to struggle through that for food, clothing, shelter, education, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think that... Um, uh, that the chill that was put on the planet with this did not really play out in program. I think we're still at the intellectual right. level of back and forth, and I'm hopeful that it won't. Well, I, I love your optimism, and I think that's a, a, a good place for us to end out. 
anything else that we ought to talk about this this week? I think we've actually covered quite a lot, actually, in this episode. I think so, too. I uh, uh, am happy that, um, you know, I just will smile a little bit about uh, we've dedicated this effort to John Martin, uh, and I would just reflect on the fact that it was this type of thinking and dialogue that John thrived on. Uh, we miss him for that because he would always insert in moments when we weren't expecting to have this kind of a conversation. Uh, but um, I do want to acknowledge uh, we're connecting the dots to John Martin's vision and uh, the vision that he held for the future is very much tied into that. So, yeah, good way to net us out there, Eric. So that's it for this episode. Thanks to my co-host, Eric Gooseby. Thanks also to our other Eric, Eric with a K, our producer and director, Eric Espera from Newstock Media. And finally, thanks to you. You can find us on all good podcast platforms. Keep those comments and questions coming. We really enjoy them and we will certainly profile them in future episodes. And so it just remains for me to say thank you very much and we will see you next time. Thanks, Ben. See you next time. Bye.